another episode. My guest today is Mark Williams. He's a best-selling author, public speaker, pioneer in the mindfulness space, and probably a lifesaver to many. We have so much to talk about today. The research in coming up for this episode was uh, phenomenal, to say the least. So firstly, Mark, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So the first question, which might not be a long mindfulness topic, it's more about your background. So at least how I understand mindfulness and this space is no one's really born into it unless you're the Buddha. <laughs> um, what was your journey like? What was your academic journey to this? So I came to mindfulness from an interest in depression. So me and my colleagues were interested in um, how depression, uh, how it comes originally to affect people, but also how once it's affected people, it keeps coming back. Not in everybody. Some people get depressed once and they never get depressed again. But some people, they find they get depressed second, third, fourth time. And, and then with depression, for most people, there are times in between their depression, their episodes of depression, when they feel more or less okay. And we were looking for a way of preventing the next episode of depression, for doing something and inviting people to try skills they could acquire that would enable them to stop the next episode of depression. I see. So what made you get into that field? Was it a personal story or more interest? Not so much a personal story at that stage in that we had been, all the three of us, John Teasdale and myself and Zindel Siegel in Toronto, had been uh, cognitive therapists. That is, we had, uh, we were doing therapy where we encouraged people to experiment with what happened when they see their own thoughts as mental events. Um, how you can see the thoughts when you're depressed, they're very negative, they're very sort of self-denigrating, like, oh, I'm useless, I'm a failure, I'm no good. Those thoughts can be sort of, of course, they affect your mood. And the guy who invented cognitive therapy, Tim Beck, said, look, if you can catch the thoughts right there and then and see how they're affecting your mood and then see whether they're actually true or not. Is this just the depression speaking? In which case, here's one thing to do. If they're really true, what can you do about it? So take action. So uh, he got people to experiment with this way of looking at their thoughts. And that's the field we were in. But when, uh, and that's, we know cognitive therapy is good for treating depression. And when, if people respond to cognitive therapy, then their chances of relapse are actually reduced, right? Two years, three years down the line. But nobody really knew how cognitive therapy was having that effect. By looking at the research, both our own research and others, it, it became clear that this was this business of the relationship with your thoughts. That is beginning to see your thoughts as mental events, as like clouds in the sky, not taking them so personally. And without then having to take them personally and engage in them, you find that they actually float off by themselves. Now, the question is, if if you want to teach the same that same skill to people, but they're not depressed, they haven't got very large negative thoughts to work with, could you teach that skill to anybody, even if they're not depressed? And well, how do you do that? Because as I say, when you're not depressed, you don't have all these negative thoughts. And then it came first of all to John Teasdale, and he persuaded us to to really look at mindfulness, because he says, in meditation, you don't have to look for negative thoughts. Lots of thoughts come, thoughts about emails, thoughts about, you know, you only need to meditate for 10 seconds and already your mind is full of thoughts. 
So you get a lot of opportunity to say, ah, there's one. Oh, here's another one. Oh, there's a feeling. Oh, there's a body sensation. There's a sound. There's another thought. There's a plan. There's a memory. And so you begin to learn the skill of, of standing back as if, or, you know, as if you're sitting on the banks of a river and just saw your thought floating past. So mindfulness has been doing this for centuries, to, um, since the ancient Buddhist tradition first started by uh, Gautama all those in two and a half thousand years ago. Mindfulness was part of a, a long and complex path to enlightenment. But the, the key thing about mindfulness itself was it was teaching the same skills cognitive therapy was teaching when people were depressed. So we thought, why don't we go to the guy in America who developed an eight-week program, John Kabat-Zinn, for chronic stress, um, he'd worked on physical problems with people with chronic pain. And we asked him, do you think this would work for preventing depression, giving people the skills to prevent depression so that when they do start to get depressed, they've already got the skills of going, ah, there's a thought. That's what we developed. We developed mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and then we evaluated it and it it reduced the risk of significantly reduced the risk of people getting depressed again, particularly in the people who had the most problems, who'd been depressed for longest, who had the most episodes. And then lots of international trials have, have pointed in that same direction, found the same thing. The one thing as you were speaking right at the start that caught my attention was how someone can be aware of their emotions. Um, as myself, I get frustrated not easily, but sometimes easily if I'm hot or hungry or whatnot, hangry. How can you then be aware of it in the moment to change it? Well, it does take practice because mostly we're aware of the consequences once we've already, you know, cascaded, our emotions have cascaded and we're not only angry, but we're frustrated about being angry and then we're guilty about being frustrated and then we're sad that we're, you know, and we pile up this emotion so it becomes a big tangle. Um, so one of the things is just to, and this is why people meditate every day when they do our eight-week course, because they get to see, there's just more chance they'll see not just the big things, which is obvious, but the little tiny things, the little ripples that might lead to a cascade. And that's, that's what you get if you meditate every day for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. You get the chance to see clearly what's coming up in the mind and body. Ah, oh, I see. So you're stopping it from getting to a outbreak in unleashing your anger in some various ways. You're tuning up your attention. You're learning to pay attention. And you're learning to pay attention moment by moment. And this is John Cabot's original idea. And he worked at University of Massachusetts in the States. He set up a center in 79 to do this work. He developed an eight-week program called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. He wrote a big book called Full Catastrophe Living. He did the whole works and he said, you know, if you get in and moment by moment, just look at what's happening in mind and body and in the world outside, but do it from a non-judgmental position, not from a, not from a sort of sense of half judgment, oh, I'm not doing well and this is rubbish and I can't do this, but just um, with curiosity and with openness and kindness to the mind and body, that, that kindness can make all the difference to how we see ourselves. That's so interesting too. I find that a lot of people, myself when I was younger, you almost have a negative view on your own self. Every thought that comes in your mind, you think, I'm not good enough for this. I shouldn't be doing this. What people think of me. It's interesting how friendliness 
to yourself and your own self-love comes into mindfulness. It's very important. It's very important right from the outset. It's very important. And you mentioned, you know, teenagers, early 20s, and actually we now know that depression starts for most people before the age of 24, their first, if they're going to get an episode of depression mm. in later life, it often has happened during teenage years. And something like 75% of people who are ever going to be depressed have already been depressed at least once before the age of 24. So, and wow. so depression first hits very often when, you know, st you're still developing, you're still changing, you know, the friendships are really important. Um, uh, your life goals are very in uh, important. So. If you first get depressed there, you're going to feel all those pressures um, coming to bear about how many friends have I got, am I good enough, will I ever pass these exams, all these sort of pressures. The funny thing is that when you get depressed later on in life, we observe in 30s, 40s, 50s, those same feelings that you had when you were a teenager come roaring back and you feel friendless and hopeless and a failure. And it sort of takes you back to that situation of being a, a rather fearful teenager where you were down to yourself, you know? Wow. So I remember watching in some of your other YouTube videos how you talk about depression being or could be context dependent. And yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. The the start of it when you're young, as you alluded to, 13 to 15 is roughly the, the first encounter with a depressive episode. That then could result in later life depressive episodes when you go through the same context. If you lose a loved one, it might spur the same feelings as you had when you were young, losing a loved one. Exactly. So there's a sort of, as you say, context dependency is really important. The thing about context dependency is a rather complicated word, but it really means that when you go back to the same situation or a similar situation, you, you, you remember things uh, from when you were last there. I mean, it's like if you go back to a place you lived when you were six or eight years old, you can hardly remember the place maybe before you go there, but when you go there, you suddenly think, oh yeah, I recognize this. Oh yeah, I remember, oh, round the corner, there's a, there's a shop and, and, round, and then there's a hill. And you, so being back in the context, it brings back things that you remember or a, a tune, you know, you can hear a tune from, you know, when you're in your teenage years and it brings back the whole, the whole context and the mind is working very well when it's doing that the mind is very sensitive to context um, but it can also bring back all the things we don't want as well if someone has a teenage son or daughter who is potentially going through the 15 to 18 age that might represent the first depressive episode there's a lot going on, being puberty, different developmental stages that they're going through, um, stretching away from their family group into more peer-related groups. How, in your research and in your own opinion, does social media play a role in the onset of depression or the catalyst of depression? There's not a great deal of research on this. What, what most research is correlational, that is, it looks at associations between use of social media and depression and the effects are there but they're not terribly strong there have been one or two trials in which people and this was an older group were um, asked if they would go off facebook in those days was the main thing would they go off facebook for a month and others were randomly 
you know, by a coin toss, they weren't going off Facebook for a month and it did improve well-being during that time. But these effects are not often very strong. And of course, social media also has a connecting effect as well. So it can connect friends, people who keep in touch with each other, just like, you know, 30 years ago, people used to phone each other when they got home from school, um, even though they'd just seen each other in school. But somehow there was the, there was the phone life as well as the school life. The thing that can affect is if, if bullying and stuff follows you home. So if you get bullied at school and then the social media means that you can't, you know, um, often can't get away from it. So I think there are upsides and there are downsides and we're not going to uninvent social media. So it's a question of how to navigate the space and be sensible about the age limits, the accessibility, the the deals you do with your family about who's on, who's off, when the net gets switched off, when it gets switched on and, and so on. And seeing if it's possible to negotiate limits that satisfy everybody rather than try to eradicate the whole thing from, from your life. So with mindfulness in a teenager, do they react the same way as a, say, 50-year-old uh, who has first came into the mindfulness space? There's a lot of evidence that mindfulness can help small children, primary and secondary age children. It's got to be sculpted for their age group. Um, and uh, there's work going on with schools, teaching in schools. We've just finished a large piece of research that didn't show any effects in schools. Um, um, but others have found that there are positive effects um, in the continent, in the United States. Our particular research um, was done rather like a sort of national rollout would be like, you know, if you imagine the government says, right, all schools are going to now teach mindfulness. We did research a bit like that because we wanted to see what would happen if schools from the top down, you know, the governors, the head would take some teachers and ask, do you want to teach mindfulness? And then we would train the teachers from, from a standing start, how to, and then we would train them as best we could to, first of all, be mindful themselves and then to, to teach the syllabus and then to teach it to the actual classes um, didn't seem to have any effect whatsoever. And there are lots of reasons for that, but I think one of the things is that we didn't really, we couldn't within the trial give the teacher enough time to really bed it in. That when mindfulness, when mindfulness comes from the bottom up where the teachers themselves are enthusiastic and they say, well, I'm, going to set, I'm going to set up a lunch club or I'm going to teach it in class as part of my, you know, social and emotional learning type thing, then it comes from the teacher enthusiasm and they know the kids and they get on with it. But when sort of it's only it's coming down from above, who's going to teach this mindfulness? You know, we're, we've just registered as a school who's going to teach mindfulness. Then I think it, it's, it's got a different feel to it. And the kids just found it boring. A lot of them found it boring. I mean, those, those few kids who found the really good teachers who were into it, who did find it more interesting, did get more engaged and actually got a bit more out of it. But that was swamped by the, just the number of um, young people that didn't actually find it in, that interesting. So um, the message we have about that is, you know, if you're already teaching mindfulness in schools, it's not a reason for giving up. Um, but it's worth asking the kids, do you like this or not? Because they know whether they like it or not. And I think where they get on with it, where they like the teacher and they like what they're doing, then they'll get benefit. I 
remember you speaking about if someone is enthusiastic into enthusiastic in starting the mindfulness journey, I think it was the eight week program versus people that weren't enthusiastic, but they were not forced, but uh, taken it anyway. Was there a correlation between the amount of enthusiasm and the results you had? No, actually, that was one of the interesting things. So we looked at what you do in those sort of trials is you want to make sure that people who benefit uh, just to see whether they would have benefited anyway from anything. So some people, um, you know, after just one session, they know then who the teacher is, they know the other people um, in the class, if it's a class-based thing. And often they say, right, this is the one for me. And there's few research in the past who's found that in other forms of psychotherapy, if you get on with the, the teacher and you're enthusiastic or get on with the therapist and you, you get that initial enthusiasm, that carries you through a long way. You, you engage with it more and you get more from it. And so, uh, and some people say, look, that's all that matters. It's sort of placebo effect, basically. Anything can work if you're enthusiastic for it. So we wanted to check that out. And so we, uh, at the end of the first week, when people had had the first class, they'd been doing it a week, we asked the same questions. Uh, how much do you think it worked? How, how do you think this will work for you? Would you recommend it to a friend even now? And that's the standard questions for enthusiasm. And there was a, there was a, many people were enthusiastic, but there was a variation, obviously. But that didn't actually correlate with outcome. The thing that correlated with outcome is whether people actually practiced the mindfulness at home, did the home practice between sessions. We give, we always give some short meditations for people to, to do at home day by day, every day. We say, practice for six out of seven days, best you can come back and tell us how it went. And some people did the five or six days a week, some people did hardly any. That's what predicted outcome, not whether people were enthusiastic. So what that means is some people who weren't very enthusiastic, they did the practice anyway, and they got the benefit. And some people who were enthusiastic didn't do the practice, and they didn't get the benefit. So it was a really interesting result. So once again, consistency is key. If someone was, say, on day three out of six or eight, and they started to lose focus, lose determination, if they didn't have the drive to complete it or the enthusiasm, is there any sort of tips that you would tell them or ask them to do that would help them continue their journey? It's a very common problem, actually, that people find that it, it, everything wears a bit thin. Um, you just can't be bothered to get up in the morning and stuff. And so you have to assume that it's going to happen, that everybody who goes on this meditation journey is going to find times when it feels much more difficult. And so you can, first of all, this element of being kind to yourself and not beating yourself up about it, just knowing that's what happens. Maybe doing something just instead of for 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, just doing something for five minutes or 10 minutes and say, that's enough for today. Or um, I'll, instead of trying to get up very early, I'll try it in the evening, just after, after supper or before I go to bed. So trying different times of day, different, different parts of the house. Um, or if that doesn't seem to help, just making your everyday life part of your mindfulness practice. So the way you're walking along when you park the car to the office, just going 5% more slowly and feeling your feet on the ground. And that can be a five-minute mindfulness practice. Just sitting right. quietly and finding ways in which whatever you're doing 
you can take little gaps between your actions just to uh, recover your posture but you know when you finish your emails just close them down and sitting for a minute before you rush off and do the next task and in that sort of way you'll probably find you gather up a minute here two minutes there three minutes there when you add it all together woven together that's 10 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes in a day and that will sustain you and the next day you might think you know what i'd actually do my practice so it's a sense of sustaining it across the time knowing that it's going to be difficult sometimes and seeing if it's possible to do just a little bit go to the place where you normally meditate sit and then make a decision there whether you want to stay for five minutes ten minutes one minute whatever it is and allow your sort of meditation space to make the decision for you rather than the state you're in when you're finishing your meal or still lying in bed or whatever right and as we alluded to before social media connects everything to everyone so it's almost impossible to find say one hour to sit down and just focus on meditation focus on mindfulness so the fact that you can do this while walking while working probably not while driving although i have heard probably not while driving yeah <laughs> i have heard how you can drive and try knock out any thoughts that are daydreaming or different distractions so just focusing on driving which is obviously what you should be doing but everyone seems to be on autopilot most of the time then they get to the later stage in their life and they think where has my life gone exactly so it's a sort of it's a, a sense of life rushing by without you being there for it a very famous teacher called Thich Nhat Hanh who's a Vietnamese teacher um, a Buddhist teacher and he lived in France for most of his life protested against the Vietnam war couldn't live in Vietnam anymore for that reason though he's visited since obviously uh, died fairly recently just in the last few years and he talks very movingly about the way in which we miss most most of our life he's got this little idea that you know when you're washing the dishes to you know you you're um, you're not really noticing the, the the sound of the water or the feel of the water or the soap or the dishes themselves you're probably thinking of things i mean it might be something pretty trivial like how you need to go out shopping but oh you'll have a cup of tea before you go out shopping and and um and then you make the tea you sit down and have a cup of tea but where's your mind when you're drinking your tea and so the tea that you dreamt of while you were doing the dishes you're missing the dishes dreaming of your tea but when you're drinking your tea you're probably thinking of what you need when you go shopping and of course you can extend this endlessly so when you're going shopping when you drive into the shops you know you're thinking about what you're going to buy when you get there and when you're walking around the shops you're thinking about that but also whether you're going to get queue or whether you're going to go to the auto teller at the end or all these all these things and you're driving back so you're always leaning forward into the next moment you're always planning what's going to happen and his observation is we miss needlessly all those little moments of course there's a danger we miss our whole life when we string together all the moments of autopilot there's a danger that the whole day goes then the week goes then the life goes and it's too late, you know, when you're in your last year of life and you think back on your life and you think, oh my gosh, where's it gone? So it's a sort of a, he calls it waking up and the Buddhists call it waking up. And you know, Buddhists used to talk about enlightenment. Another translation of enlightenment is awakening. 
And awakening is much more in the moment right now. It's not like I'm working to get enlightened or awakened at the end of my life or working for this um, long distant goal. It's working day by day to have those moments of awakening, of stepping out of autopilot right now so that you, you can stitch together moments of awakening instead of your life being a, a woven web of autopilot. I have never got into mindfulness. I sacrifice Monday through Friday for Saturday and Sunday and then dread waking up on a Monday. Talking about mindfulness is great, but what are the actual steps to doing it? How can someone like me who hasn't gone to school or done research, how can I find bliss in every moment? If mindfulness was about finding bliss in every moment, that might be quite difficult. So I would start much, much more simply than that. And to start the journey of mindfulness, it often finds something simple to focus on. And usually people start by sitting, sitting with the breath, or, or some other anchor point, like the sensations of the feet on the floor, for example, or the body on the chair, or the hands on the lap, or the breath. And that anchors your attention. It's, it gives you something to come back to when your mind wanders. Now, why do we do that at all? Because mindfulness is not about clearing the mind or getting rid of all these states of feeling, say, pressured and burnt out. It's actually about um, seeing them clearly and what, what, what do they consist of? Often when we're burnt out and exhausted, there's a lot of things going on. We might be distracted, we might be judgmental, we might be emotionally blinkered, just wanting to focus. We might be on a, a, a sort of hair trigger all the time. And therefore we're trying to hold back from being angry or irritated. We may feel off balance. We haven't got any equanimity at all. We may be overreactive, fearful. We may be just joyless. There's no joy in our life. And when, when, when that happens, it's often because you're in a sort of driven mode that you're, you're trying to keep up with life's demands, but they're becoming overwhelming. And when that happens, it can feel overwhelming, but actually there's all sorts of little component parts to that. And if we remember that emotions like exhaustion are often made up of some thought, some thinking, some helplessness, some, um, some emotion and some uh, body sensations, then um, when you become mindful about them, then you'll see their, how, they, how they fit together. And the mindfulness itself allows them to uncouple. So instead of it being like a huge weight on you of feeling completely burnt out, you'll see what are the little emotions that are coming together? What are the behaviors? What are the body sensations? What are the thoughts that are going on? And when they uncouple, they become more workable and you begin to see spaces between them. And in those spaces, you begin to see more things you might just begin to appreciate about, about little parts of the day that you weren't even seeing before because you were trying to damp out, you're trying to sort of cancel the, the unpleasant, but you ended up cancelling the pleasant as well. Decentering from your thoughts can also be a good way to do that. Yeah. So, and, but it takes some work and some training. That's why it's a program rather than just an idea. You know, you say, well, um, Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I think mindfulness is a great idea, so let's just try and do it without 
as it were, practicing it. And yeah, I mean, we all know that sometimes we're more mindful at other times, and sometimes we're more mindless. And but but generally, when we're getting into that state of being burnt out, exhausted, we're no longer tasting our food, we're no longer enjoying our friends, we're no longer enjoying going out. It's affecting our whole life. And what a mindfulness program, if you do the whole eight weeks, will teach you to do is to gradually come out of your shell a bit and test things out by having the meditations there to give you the resources you need to do that by seeing clearly what the mind's doing and how it's, it's trying to help, but it's often trying to help by preoccupying you on your problems and not allowing you to escape from your problems. And so, um, so mindfulness is not about clearing the mind or just sort of getting bliss moment by moment, but it's about seeing clearly the patterns of your mind. And when you sit there focusing on your feet, your mind wanders. That's exactly what mindfulness is about. It's seeing the wandering mind, seeing where it goes and going, ah, I recognize that. And then instead of rushing back saying, I've made a mistake, I've made a mistake, my mind wandered, is to say, it's okay. I recognize that's mind wandering, that's fine. Now gently coming back to the breath or the body, the feet, the seat, the hands, not because you've made a mistake, but because you then have a chance of seeing it going again and again and again. It's like going to the gym and practicing with weights. You know, you, 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 you practice again and again and again. It builds up a muscle. In this case, it's building up the attention muscle. Yeah, that's right. I've heard you say that in another um, uh, YouTube video, and that blew my mind. I always thought as soon as my mind wanders, that's it. I'm no good at this. I should have had an empty mind. And I know a lot of people feel the same way when they think of mindfulness, uh, meditation. When they think of meditation, they think empty mind. As you described before, someone sat on top of a mountain, pure bliss, nothing going on. And then you described that person's probably thinking that they're sat on a rock and it's hurting. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, or they're, they're hungry, or I forgot to send an email, or whatever. And, you can, and one of these, the interesting thing is that some of these little thoughts that come up are very compelling. I mean, it, you know, you can be halfway off the chair to answer an email and you suddenly realize, actually, uh, my intention here was to take this time to be still and to just notice the pattern of the mind. But that one really caught me. And so you can become aware of the, the different urgency of the mind and learn to surf it, learn to surf the urgency that comes with thoughts like, oh, my gosh, I'm meant to do something now. Now, of course, there are some times when you're meditating when you will need to stop and do something else. So if you if you smell the gas as uh, you left the gas under your, you know, potatoes and they're now just black, charred things, then you probably need to get up and sort it. Yeah, um, uh, and there are some things where you do need to take a mindful. You know, I need to stop this and do something else. But much of what comes up in when we sit for ten minutes, twenty minutes, half an hour, is stuff we don't need to take action on now. As part of our new program, we're actually asking people to try out the thought on an out-breath, no action needed right now. Just on an out-breath, no action needed at this moment, to see whether that helps to deal with the jumble of actions that the mind creates that actually you're probably never going to take. You know, that plan, this plan, that micro plan, that memory, this, which is all stirring up the body's energy system, using up your energy, on actions you're never going to take. And that sometimes it really is very calming to say, no action needed right now. 
of an out-breath. And calm comes with insight. The insight is, I didn't even know I was stressed. I didn't even know I had all these actions going. And yet I said to myself, no action needed. And oh, I now feel a bit calmer. And of course, it allows the space when you do need to respond wisely to take the action you need to take because you're not jumbled up with all sorts of irrelevant actions. You can then see the space to do the actions you really need to do. Wow. I know from the motivational side of YouTube that I've spent many years of my life that you only have so much willpower. And when I was a personal trainer, we were taught that during the end of the day, uh, after dinner, that's when you're more, more likely to snack. That's when you have so little willpower. You think, ah, the one cookie is not going to make a problem. In the morning, you feel great. You're going to go for that shake. You're going to go to the gym. Having the ability to stand back and... Would, would decenter be the right word in this circumstance where you can step away from those thoughts that are jumping in at you all the time? Yeah, you see them. And I mean, the, thing, the point about mindfulness right from the earliest tradition was that it doesn't, that, that what it brings is freedom, the freedom to choose. And so it's not, it doesn't mean you should therefore, right, mindfulness means no snacks. It means, mindfulness means choice. And, um, and, and the freedom to choose rather than the prohibitions. So that would be Puritan mindfulness, you know, no, no enjoyment mindfulness. So, but it's not that, it's actually seeing if you can retain the sense of choice and realize that moods sometimes do mean that you're hungry, you're angry, you're tired, you're feeling lonely, the usual thing that actually means that the things that we like to take, which, which we don't think are good for us, we do, under those circumstances. So it's about having those choices. And again, one thing that we do know is that all of those states have, at the very moment that they start up, they don't start off as sort of hunger, anger, tiredness, um, you know, loneliness, whatever. They start off in their very first moment with just a sheer sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness. It's what's called Vedana or, or feeling tone. And that the, the Vedana in the, in the traditions was the second foundation of mindfulness. And it's really that sense of just pleasant or unpleasant. And it's very hard to see because once you get lost in anger or sadness or regret or something, then your mind's full of those memories and thoughts. But everything, every moment, every experience, every sensation in the body, every memory has pleasantness or unpleasantness. And that pleasantness or unpleasantness then affects the next few moments. But we, if we become aware of them, we can see what is driving our impulses much more clearly and therefore we have no choice. Wow, that's very interesting. Very interesting. One side note, how would ADHD affect um, the process of mindfulness? My understanding, which I'm a beginner in most things, so I never claim to be uh, knowledgeable. ADHD would be the allowing of those thoughts that enter to take over your physical manifestation. Um, I quickly need to read a book. Oh, no, I need to go make a drink. No, I need to cut the grass. These sort of things. How would that then help with, or how would mindfulness help with ADHD? Is there anything uh, in the research that suggests that? So there's a psychologist called Susan Burgles in Amsterdam who's an expert on applying mindfulness to 
ADHD and also to uh, autistic spectrum, especially in teenagers. Um, and she does work with the teenagers themselves, but with also their parents. And they meet together to start with a group, which is, which is both parents and the, the young people. And then she splits them. There's a parents group who do mindfulness and there's a young people's group who do mindfulness. And obviously, the, again, the mindfulness is, is, is geared up uh, for what the age group, starting off with very simple, short practices. And, and then they come together at the end. And she encourages sometimes if they want to, at least once a week, for uh, one of the parents to meditate with the young person. Um, and just do the meditation together. So, um, uh, and she's got good results with that. One of the interesting things is that often we now know that parents of ADHD um, young people, uh, one or other of them sometimes uh, have had ADHD in the past or still would give themselves a diagnosis of ADHD and that um, the mindfulness is not just helping the young person, but it's helping the parents as well. Another thing we know is if parents or carers actually learn mindfulness, it can help the young person or the person they're caring for, even if that person is not doing any mindfulness at all. So um, it's not really sometimes necessary to say, well, my young person's got a problem, they need to learn mindfulness. Actually, if the parent learns mindfulness, they are often there able to find a way of handling things, of, of, of giving greater space. And the, the young person themselves or the person they're caring for themselves finds that they, um, their parent is more available to them and somehow the whole situation calms a little. So um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting, and there's lots more research needed to be done, but I think sculpting meditations for people who have different sorts of um, problems in their life is is going to be the um, the thing that's necessary in the future rather than saying one size fits all. The most recent book of yours, Deeper Mindfulness, how does that elaborate on the previous book? So the previous book which was called Mindfulness Finding Peace in a Frantic World, it took the clinical program that we developed for to depression and made it available for anybody. So it wasn't just for people who are depressed because the sort of entanglements that we all get into are the same sort of entanglements that depressed people get into. You know, the, the not being able to let go of um, things that have happened in the past or feeling like we're no good or a bit of a failure. We all get that from time to time. And we're often on automatic pilot much of the time, all of us actually. So that was available, trying to make mindfulness available to everybody, but it was the mindfulness that we learned and that we applied to depression. And then people start to say, well, is there anything else I can do to sustain my practice, to deepen my practice? Or they said, well, I, I used to practice, but now I've, I've, I haven't practiced for years and I want to get back into it. Um, or they found the meditations might have helped, but some of them they didn't get on with so much. They could see its potential. They could see other people doing it, but um, it, it didn't seem to be exactly what they needed. And so we, we wrote this deeper mindfulness book to give people another access point. Um, the world has moved on in many ways. So instead of having to give a CD, because there was a, a CD, well, most people don't have a CD player anymore. Uh, so they're downloads. And because it's not a CD, you can, you can give people many more meditations, shorter meditations, longer meditations, so they have a choice. 
So that's one thing. There's 10 minute versions, 20 minute versions, half hour versions, so that people can choose what suits their lifestyle. And there's also minimal instructions that just gives two or three minutes and then just a bell every five minutes. So you can sculpt your own practice using the bell as a timer just to, to bring you back into the present moment and decide, is that enough for today or do I want to do another five minutes? So that's, that's a technical improvement. But the main uh, improvement and, and way of deepening mindfulness is taking account of new um, research in uh, the brain and in psychology, which shows that um, this very, very early reaction of pleasant or unpleasant, what's called affective valence in the technical jargon or feeling tone more commonly in the Buddhist literature or Vedana in the Buddhist literature, but that comes at the very, very start of these emotional cascades. And that if you, if you um, spend time just noticing just that sheer pleasantness or unpleasantness, it's like it's like a sort of a, something you've missed uh, that, that you've, it's so simple, it feels like, ah, oh, so obvious. Yeah, of course, pain is unpleasant. What could possibly be useful about just labeling it as unpleasant? But then it turns out that you can see all sorts of tiny things that are unpleasant in your life and other tiny things that are pleasant. And you get a much greater sense of the of the weave, the woven nature in your life from moment to moment, all the little ups and downs. And you notice then that the ups often lend to it, often lead to a sort of disappointment when it doesn't last. So you end up not feeling great. The downs can end up with a sort of, oh, I don't, resistance and grouchiness, which then spreads around to all your friends and family. So when you actually become aware of these little ups and downs, it means that at that very point, before it all kicks off, you've got a choice about what to do next. And that sense of choice is very, very liberating, very calming, actually. So that's the first aspect of the, the book that's, that's uh, new. It was always there in, in our courses, but it, it wasn't made explicit. Um, it was always a bit in the background. So this makes it, puts it in the foreground. And the second thing is there's new development in neuroscience, which shows that um, every, all, most of our experience, moment by moment, is actually a, a, a sort of constructed in the head from our senses, but then our mind predicts what's going to happen next. And most of our experience is actually prediction rather than actuality. So our mind sort of simulates a, a sort of story in the head and generally the world is predictable, so we don't need to check in. You know, we're in a familiar room, we see things around us. Um, it would be very overwhelming for the brain to have to check in all the sensations around us, wherever you're sitting right now. Imagine if it had to take in every color, every shape. No, it doesn't have to. It knows what's there, so it makes a prediction. And unless something happens, like something suddenly appears in the corner of your eye, when you, you look, because it's unexpected, then the mind is perfectly content to just predict and to work on your predictions. Well, that doesn't seem very important, but it is when you realize that at the start of this each cycle of prediction, you have this feeling tone. And the feeling tone is going to color the whole trajectory of these mental models that you're creating. And so the whole thing can be flavored by a down mood or an up mood. And, 
And so being aware of that is really important. Where do you see the future of this research going, the future of mindfulness? Well, I think there'll be a number of different things. First of all, taking mindfulness to look at different sort of hard clinical problems. Like can mindfulness help things like obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD? Can it help with anorexia? Can it help with bulimia? Can it help with um, uh, helping people cope with some of the most difficult things in life? And there's research on all of those that's quite hopeful, but there needs to be uh, more research. Can it help with chronic pain that doesn't seem to have any uh, any cause? You know? So there's lots of hopeful research there, but there needs to be more. And then probably there needs to be research on some of the elements that are being discovered. So, for example, if you take a common thing like procrastination, yeah, I mean, Procrastination is not a real problem. Most people do it from time to time. Some people find it's a very big problem and their life is ruined because they put everything off. And, and it's also, procrastination is the first cousin, I think, of the sort of joylessness that you experience in depression, when it seems like everything goes. You can't do anything. It's as if somebody's turned off your motivation switch. You just on a lie in bed, sit on the couch, do nothing. Now, procrastination is, is not that, but you can see how they're sort of related. And one of the ways in which they're related, um, and this is just sort of fairly new research, is that um, we know that the mind has a very good way of trying to focus um, when you need to focus. So if you're doing a big project, one of the ways in which you can focus on that project and nothing else is the mind sort of just pushes away everything that you don't need to be doing. So, and it pushes it away by just devaluing it, by saying, no, I don't think I want to go out for a drink. No, I don't think I'll do that. I don't want to, I won't take care of that. No, I don't want to, you know, I can't take that library book back now. No, I don't, I can't return that email. And it almost devalues the things that you're pushing away. And that's, that's very effective. I mean, well, if it, if it allows you to get on with what you need to be doing, it's very effective. The problem is when that project's finished, all those things are now devalued. And it can be very difficult to go back to, um, you know, to, you've lost touch maybe with your friends. You haven't been out for months because you've been doing this big project. So you think, oh, when this project is over, or when this exam is over, I'll feel great. Well, maybe you do for an hour or two. And then the next morning you think, oh, can't be bothered. So one of the questions is, can we understand those normal, I can't be bothered, and help us to understand the big motivational switch off that happens in depression? So we can help people who are really depressed and need help for that from looking at these everyday procrastination. And I think those sort of the tendency of the mind to push away what it doesn't need for now is one of the places to look because um, it's the mind doing the best it can. Again, we can be still kind to the mind and appreciate what it's trying to do, but what it's trying is doing is it's backfiring because you know, for people who are depressed, their big project is, is sorting themselves out. You know, when you say to yourself, I'm a failure, I'm no good, my life is an end, what's the point of me? Then that's, that's like a huge project. So all your attention is trying to sort yourself out. And the mind says, oh, you've got a big project on, right? Downplay everything else. I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to do anything. All as a result of this 
project which your mind is trying to sort out. So gradually, how can mindfulness help to understand that, to begin to reintroduce? And part of what we've done in this recent book is to give people, the Deeper Mindfulness book, is to give people a way forward, to take baby steps back into experiencing little parcels of joy that can begin to be strung together um, into reclaiming your life. That is powerful. That is very powerful. It gives the person that is suffering maybe procrastination, depression, or just a bad time, it gives them the authority to look at their own life, uh, not from a negative standpoint, more of a friendly, self-loving standpoint. I think it's a very good way of summing it up, a friendly, self-loving standpoint. And we do, our default option is often to be very critical. You know, the inner critic is never that far away. And, uh, you know, I mean, anybody who's run committees knows that often there's one negative person on the committee that speaks very loudly and very often. And, uh, and often the chair, if you're the chair of that committee, you sort of end up thinking, oh my gosh, are they going to come or not in this committee meeting? And, and actually, as a chair, you have to learn to hear what they say and then say, okay, thanks very much. We've heard what you say. Now, does anybody else want to speak? Does anybody else? And then you make space for somebody who hadn't dared say anything but often speaks in a quieter, wiser voice. And you give a chance for everybody to speak. And it's, you could see your mind like a conference table where there's one person speaking too loud and always critical and actually saying, thanks very much. We've heard what you, we've heard what you want to say, um, but does anybody else want to speak? And then listen for the quieter, more loving voice in your mind. Because they are there, it's just they've been drowned out. That's a great analogy. The last question I have for you, Mark, is maybe something you haven't thought much about, although it is seem to be uh, pushed into the mainstream culture more and more nowadays, which is psychedelics. There's been numerous Netflix documentaries, YouTube videos, TikTok videos, all about psychedelics and how wonderful they are. Obviously, they come with a whole host of negative um, side effects that should be looked at and probably why they're illegal in most countries. The one research paper I found which was um, uh, jumped out at me and one I want to ask you if you've uh, delved into the research about is how taking psilocybin from magic mushrooms alleviated almost out of I think 100 participants um, around 80% classed it as A, the most meaningful time in their life and B, alleviated the fear of death. Is there any room for, um, dare I say, doing mindfulness the hard way, which would be um, some paths that the monks have taken for devoting their whole life to <clears throat> becoming mindful and enlightened, and taking a pill with a magic mushroom and achieving similar uh, results. How do you find the, the connection between psychedelics and mindfulness? Well, like you, I'm cautious because of the side effects. And I think there probably needs to be much, much more very careful research, randomized controlled trials, rather than just a series of cases that uh, allows us to be sure about what's happening here. And I think that one of the interesting things is that often in, um, in this sort of work, there seems to be quick fixes, in many cases don't last as long. So 
because they're not training up the mind to have different habits. So the old habits are still there. And if you could sort of immediately wave a magic wand or take a pill and the habits would go, then that would be an interesting development. But the important thing is what happens three months, six months, one year down the line, two years down the line. Well, Mark Williams, thank you very much for enlightening all of us today. Thank you for your time. And thanks to the Uncommon Paradigm podcast. Taking a breathing space, making a definite change in your posture so that your posture embodies a sense of awakeness, a sense of dignity. And beginning step one by acknowledging what's going on in your mind and your body right now. Not trying to change anything, but just opening to what is here. What thoughts may be going through your mind? What feelings there may be around? Any sensations in the body? seeing if it's possible to be open to them all. And then step two, narrowing the focus of attention down to the sensations of breathing. Wherever you feel the breath moving, focusing on that place and with great precision, tuning in to the sensations of the in-breath for its full duration and the out-breath for its full duration. now broadening the focus of your awareness around the breath to take in the whole body, the whole space that the body takes up, and becoming aware of all the sensations there may be in the body, holding them in the spaciousness of bodily awareness. As if your whole body was breathing. And if there are particular parts of the body where there are intense sensations, see if it's possible to open to them, perhaps allowing the breath to breathe into that place and allowing them to open and soften. 
and bringing this sense of spaciousness into the next moments of your day.